Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Helena. And I'm Tom. Today we bring you our conversation with baritone, resident weather guy and all-around physics nerd, Daniel Brenner. Daniel is finishing up his master's at the University of Edinburgh and will be starting a PhD in the autumn. Daniel's been working with Professor Arjun Barrera on a wide range of topics, from improving weather forecasts by understanding how fluid turbulence switches between two-dimensional and three-dimensional motion, to exploring the possibility that particles from Earth could be propelled into space and potentially seed life on other planets. Daniel is an absolutely fascinating person to talk to. He shared so many insights and anecdotes with us that we just couldn't fit it all into one episode. So, if you're interested in hearing more of our conversation, we've put together a special bonus episode. But without further ado, let's meet Daniel Brenner. Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. On with the show. So yeah, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. For the listeners, could you uh, just introduce yourself, tell us who you are, and tell us a little bit about what you do? So um, first of all, thank you for the opportunity. My name is Daniel Brenner, and I'm currently in the throes of completing my master's at Edinburgh University, and I'll be beginning a PhD uh, with Professor Arjun Barrera in the uh, Higgs Centre for Theoretical Physics starting in September. Broadly, I focus on pure theoretical ideas in in turbulence and chaos theory and direct application into into meteorology and and weather prediction, and then also some other interesting ideas about upper atmospheric physics and some ideas around uh, particle transport in, in the solar system. Exciting. Yeah, we noticed in when when we were researching you, we noticed that these are quite seem to be quite different areas of physics. How did you get involved in these? Is there a link between them? Um, it's I don't know. It's all I used to I used to plan my life out, and now it's sort of all become very random, um, <laughs> uh, which just seems to be the way the research has gone. I, I was didn't I didn't intend to get into any of this stuff. So I did direct entry. I I skipped first year, went in straight into second year, and. I knew that I wanted to do weather stuff because I've been crazy about weather and climate prediction and you know for, for years. And I read a paper uh, after talking to a PhD student that was on this this quite pure theoretical idea that the Reynolds number, which is a measure of how turbulent a fluid is, uh, scales with how chaotic it is. And I thought, that's really cool. I mean, I wonder whether you can find this in the weather. And so I went to the person who'd written the paper, which was Professor Barrera, and I said, you know, hey, I know about weather. Can we work on this? And we did. We set up a summer project. And basically, after that, I, I didn't stop working with him. We, we just kept going. A few years prior, he had published a paper which showed that quite large particles they could be found in the upper atmosphere could be being knocked out by interplanetary space dust particles which sort of pervade the the solar system often from from comets and, and other different astrophysical objects he showed that these space dust particles could knock these large biological particles out of the upper atmosphere and into space and so hence that would be a what's called a, a classical panspermia mechanism a way in which one can transfer life between different planets but his theory required that uh, you could f- 
find these biological particles very high in the upper atmosphere at 150 kilometers, which is deep into the into the outer layers of the atmosphere. So nobody really knows if you, if you can get particles there. And he had this idea that maybe you could find really strong vertical winds that could push the particles upwards. And then, you know, I came along at just the right time as this sort of, uh, sort of in quotes, weather expert uh, into this very pure, very almost austere theoretical physics group as this this guy who likes clouds, you know, <laughs> to come in and and you know to to look at these other interesting you know possibilities. I think it's also because I'm very bad at being bored, and so I quite like working on lots of different things. Particularly because of the way that funding works these days, the projects that one has to work on are very very specific. You're basically answering very, very specific questions in very well-defined areas. And actually, research didn't used to be like that at all. I mean, lots of my heroes, not because they're geniuses, just because it was the way that it used to be, would work on lots of different areas. So Richard Feynman, who's a hero of mine, you know, published papers on turbulence and the way that the wind blows on on the waves. And, you know, he got a Nobel Prize in, in quantum mechanics in something called quantum electrodynamics, which is a, a really advanced, you know, deep theoretical physics topic. But he did all this other stuff also in, in condensed matter. And it, I think it's just because of the way funding has gone that everybody gets really tightly specialized. And that, it just, just didn't suit me. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I was kind of interested in how you bridged the gap between the quite theoretical stuff and also the kind of the more direct applications as in the weather is that a challenge or is that kind of is that something you enjoy doing i mean in terms of the pure science and, and publishing side of stuff you know putting out papers and things that's that can be really difficult because you have to communicate very clearly uh, how your very precisely closely defined theoretical construction or in our case our uh, direct numerical simulation of, of a certain set of equations, you know, how does that bear any resemblance to something in the weather where you've got so many different degrees of freedom, so many different motions? And so it, there's a real art in being able to go, you know, what we've constructed looks like this very particular part of the weather, say. Um, so yeah, no, it, it, is, it, is, it is a big problem and, and effectively that is a bit of my job within the research group is is to look at what's happening in the meteorology field and where is the the, the future simulations where is the the computing power going you know what what kind of simulations might be possible and then at the same time what's happening in in the sort of pure theoretical physics world in terms of understanding the, the more fundamental building blocks because as computing power increases, the more you can, sim the better you can simulate reality in your computer model, which is how weather, that's how weather is forecast, is you stick all of the equations of nature inside a box and you simulate it. But you have to make some approximations. Do I simulate the weather at, you know, every 10 miles, every one mile? And the, the finer you do that, the better your forecast, but also the more physics you start to represent. And as a consequence, some of the pure theoretical ideas that were explored in the in the in the in the 80s by some of the sort of French mathematicians need to start to be considered in, in the context of, of these models. But explaining that to people and convincing people, even just specialists, is 
very difficult. All that matters in terms of weather prediction is, can you improve forecast skill? You know, can I make a better weather forecast? That's the only metric that's of interest. So until until your research has got to a stage where you can go, you know, this is improved this forecast skill, or this is improved this mechanism, which is going to better resolve this process and better improve forecast skill, people are not so interested. And again, that's because of the, the, the way that f- the, the funding has gone. Yeah, it's a really interesting dichotomy between the need for very precise, focused research that tackles the questions in a really good way, but also to to appreciate the importance of more kind of interdisciplinary, broader stuff. That's something that we've actually been trying to focus on this semester on the podcast is trying to show yeah, areas of research where actually interdisciplinarity is really important and bridging together different aspects of science is, is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And physics hasn't always been that good at it um, in terms of understanding the, the interdisciplinary side of things. Again, that it's also part of the, the way that I work when I'm doing the pure research stuff. I will quite often come across a, a, a certain physical problem that I'm struggling to come up with a, a solution for. And if I'm not getting anywhere with the tools that I know and that I'm familiar with, my next port of call tends to be to go and look at the next nearest field. So for quite a lot of problems that I work on, that's condensed matter physics or, or statistical physics, where the prob- the physical problem might be might seem completely different, but there will be certain symmetries and there'll be certain properties that are the same. And as a consequence, the, the mathematics that's used will be the same. And therefore I can steal. I mean, that's, you know, they, 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 the comedians always talk about stealing, you know, jokes from other people. I mean, I think that's true with, with physics. I mean, you, you have to steal ideas from, from everywhere to make progress. I did a piece of work looking at the scaling between a two-dimensional and three-dimensional turbulence. We found that we could measure that by the chaotic properties of those two different systems. In the atmosphere, we have a lot of two-dimensional motion, and occasionally that, that breaks in, into a, into three-dimensional motion. So, if you think the the Earth is a is a sphere, and so you, if you look at satellite images of all the clouds, everything's got a kind of rotational symmetry. Everything looks kind of flat, um, two-dimensional. Um, but actually, you know, if you're sat in a thunderstorm, it's definitely not two-dimensional. It's very <laughs> much three-dimensional. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so there is so so. That led me to thinking, okay, can we look at transitions between you know, two-dimensional and, and three-dimensional flows? We simulated a, a, a box which had a kind of fluid in it. And basically by squashing the box, you can uh, change whether you're going to have two-dimensional turbulence or three-dimensional turbulence. And then by doing some clever maths and some clever simulation things, you can figure out how chaotic you can measure the chaos of those two systems and you can measure the chaos as you make the box smaller and smaller and smaller and so we found that that there was this sort of transition in in as one might expect between chaos in a two-dimensional system and chaos in a in a three-dimensional system which is a very expected result what was unexpected is that the transition that we found was very very sharp and so it looks like it's something discontinuous which is something quite rare in physics. There are not many systems, uh, real physical systems, where you get that sort of very sharp discontinuous transition, uh, particularly in fluid mechanics and in in fluids. Uh, Things tend to be a bit more continuous. Once that result was found, I was then brought in to go, okay, so what does that mean for the weather? 
Um, and as the resident cloud guy, as the resident cloud guy, <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, that, that's that, that, that's all I do is I get an email saying, you know, weather person, what is you know, what does this mean? <laughs> um, um, and uh, that took a bit of head scratching because um, obviously there are lots of different ways in which you could squish a box and. You know, there's all sorts of technical reasons as to why the way that that simulation is done might not apply to certain weather situations. Um, you know, in the weather, you have different densities of things going on. There's temperature changes. It's a much more complicated system. But then, you know, hunting around, I discovered that there was a, a paper a couple of years ago where they had flown a plane into a hurricane and they had measured a similar kind of thing. They had, they had measured a transition, not with chaos, but they'd measured a transition between two-dimensional turbulence and three-dimensional turbulence inside a hurricane. And so we had found that there was this this very sharp transition between the how chaotic the atmosphere is in that particular regime. And so, you know, the simple thing to say is that if the weather models cannot represent accurately that transition between the two-dimensional turbulence in that hurricane into the three-dimensional and sort of vice versa, then that could lead to a less predictable intensification of, of a hurricane in your weather model in, in the forecast if that, if that transition is not represented properly. But it's still, I mean, that's, that's really recent. That's sort of still you know, ongoing and we, we've still got lots more work to do. I mean, this is, this is what's exciting about it is that this really is sort of the, the boundary of what we understand. But, you know, who knows? I mean... Uh, with all of this sort of stuff, you you know you wake up one day and you get another email saying, "Oh no, it was all wrong," <laughs> um, and that and that and that can happen. That can happen. There's a there's a common misunderstanding that that in science you like you find a fact and it's like just there and it never goes away and it doesn't change. You know, sometimes we do we have results and you know they're wrong. You know, things don't work out, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't talk about you know, the work that, that, that you're doing. It's interesting because I sometimes get the feeling that, that not enough people, particularly sometimes in atmospheric science, are open about just trying to get people talking. And that's also to do with the competitive nature of it as well. People forget that it's, it's a very, very competitive industry or enterprise. Is it? I hadn't realised it was such a... Oh, yes. Yeah, no, it's very... <laughs> it's very... Yeah, no, it's, it's all... All academia is incredibly cutthroat as in in yeah uh um uh yeah i was about to say something i shouldn't shouldn't say um <laughs> but yes i mean uh i yeah i can talk i can talk about somebody else's group um I, i've got a friend who works in condensed matter physics and uh you know they have very explicit rival research groups to the point where they can't referee you know each other's papers and things like that wow so yeah, I mean it happens, but you know, hopefully, with you know, with with the world changing and you know, increasing diversity in terms of the, the workplace and and the environments, that that sort of over competitiveness will drop. I don't I don't know what it is about about physics and physicists, but I mean maybe 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 it's just the department that I'm in or something. But I'm always hearing sort of very silly stories from condensed matter, but particularly the condensed matter department where. You know, so that they that all the research groups will use very large facilities, so things like Diamond, which is basically big lasers or, or, or big neutron beam facilities, and 
they have to be careful about not, you know, leaving computers logged in and things like that, because people will try and see what the other group is looking at or things like that. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a funny one that. Condensed matter scientists. What are they like? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm going to get, I'm going to get lots of hate mail now. Um, From condensed matter, but uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it does happen everywhere. I'm just particularly aware of it in, 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 the, in condensed matter. Since we have a resident cloud guy, I had a question about weather predictions because they always seem to be terrible in Edinburgh. I will say that. And um, <laughs> I was wondering, is it is it one of those things where we know that it's inaccurate and we know where we need to what needs to be done, or is it that in sort of the way that you were working? we keep finding new things and then we can add them on top of it and it happens to improve it. Does that make sense? Like, does the, do, do we look at the model and say, we need to work on this area or does it just sort of happen through different research and more observations? Um, I mean, so there's, there's quite a few, there's sort of quite a few things in there. That's, um, it's, you know, <laughs> it's quite, it's quite, a, it's, it, I mean, no, it's great. I mean, it, it's a very, it's a, I mean, that understanding, uh, how accurate a weather forecast is a whole field in itself. Um, so the first thing to say is that you're, you're right, that, that we know we do need to Im- improve forecasts and, and that there is fundamental work that needs to be done there. And, you know, we need more computing power and higher resolution models. You know, that's that's sort of a given and, and that, will, that will happen with time. There is another bit that people forget about, and that is the communication of the information. Weather forecasting is a problem in in theoretical physics. It is it is I I have the the fundamental laws of nature and I stuff them inside a computer model and I run them in a certain way. It's all done by physicists and scientists and chemists etc. And it spits out a load of numbers and it tells me what it thinks the weather's going to be in the future. But understanding that information and it, it's it's not trivial. It's it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, it used to be you would have so you would get your weather forecast either from the newspaper, which would be printed, or you would have it effectively briefed to you, basically what the television weather forecasts are or, or, or were. But nobody uses those anymore, really. I mean, the majority of people are, are using um, you know, app-based things. And so there's a whole raft of literature on understanding, you know, if I tell somebody that the probability of precipitation is 35%, what does that mean for them? You know, how do they interpret that information? There's loads of different ways that you could interpret what does 35% chance of rain mean? And also different apps come up with that percentage in different ways. You get some apps that will bias the percentages different ways, even just the, the weather icon, you know, how much percentage chance of rain does there need to be for you to have a, a rainy icon as opposed to a, a sunny icon? What, what does sunny mean? You know, is, you know, is it one, it's one cloud in the sky, sunny, or is it, you know, there's, there's just so many different things that you could do with that. So, so when people say that the forecast is not accurate or the forecast was wrong, and normally if you drill it down, there'll, there'll be some sort of either misinterpretation of what's happened or there will be a, a technical issue. So that the Met Office is the UK uh, National Weather Forecasting Service, or that they're, they're technically called the, the Public Weather Service, or they provide that service to the UK, rather. They publish all of their metrics and statistics on, on the accuracy of their forecasts, and um, most of them are above, I think almost all of them are above 85%. 
um, in, you know, in terms of accuracy, you know, next day, you know, temperature forecasts, all these different, the different metrics. So uh, I think accuracy in terms of forecasts needs to now also take account of things like you know, when was it updated. If you look at the forecast, you know, five days away compared to, you know, one hour away, there is a massive difference in terms of how confident you can be in that, in that outcome. Uh, there, there was some lovely statistic that I've now forgotten, which was something like, you know, the, the five-day, and this was a few years ago now, so it would be much better. The five-day forecast was as accurate as the one-day forecast was 50 years ago, something like that. So, you know, things are improving all the time. However, going back to your, what you were originally saying, so I go off on tangents all the time, I know that. Um, I love it. <laughs> The weather is inherently chaotic, but you know what, what does that mean? Chaos has got a very rigorously defined mathematical definition, which is um, sensitive dependence on initial conditions. So let's unpack that. So what does that mean? So if let's say I could write down an equation that describes all of the weather and how it evolves in time, and I at you know right now I feed it all of the different weather properties that I could possibly throw at it, you know, the air temperature, pressure, wind speeds, etc. And then I propagate that forward, that, that equation forwards in time, and I come out with a forecast in the, in the future as to what, what the weather is going to be. And then I go back and I take those same initial conditions and just, I don't know, add a one degree or, or even half a degree or a sixth of a degree to the temperature at, I don't know, one point or three points in, in your weather forecasting uh, input, you will end up at your forecast day with a completely different forecast to the to the original one, and that's what, that's what we mean by by sensitive dependence on initial conditions. That that very small errors in your initial conditions will lead to very disparate outcomes. So there are limits on how predictable we can be. I don't think we've at all reached the kind of limits of predictability. Some people think we have, but then people thought that in the 50s and the 60s, people have always thought that. The limits now are certainly, you know, computing power. You know, the more computing power you, you throw at it, the higher the resolution you can run, you can model. But the higher the resolution, as I mentioned earlier, the more physics you start to resolve and so the the more sort of physical processes you start to you start to realize the granularity of your model becomes much better and as a consequence you then have to start thinking about okay what other physical processes do i need to put in to this you know how how do i check that this is still matching reality when i've got this resolution that's so high and i think that and coupled with pushing the boundaries in terms of computing is going to be where the the, the bigger leaps in terms of accuracy are going to come from. Computers uh, have like a finite number of numbers that they can store. So uh, there's a guy in Oxford, uh, Professor Tim Palmer, who's uh, looking at, okay, what, what if I, instead of trying to fill the computer with these really, really precise numbers that are, you know, 64 decimal places long, can I still get the same accuracy of weather forecast with a higher resolution if I truncate and I, and I run it at you know I don't know, sixteen decimal places or thirty two decimal places. Can I still get a an accurate forecast? Because if you can do that, then you can really push up the the resolution. 
I feel like that kind of goes back to what we were saying at the beginning of how you have to marry sort of theoretical things with with what's actually happening and how do you how do you bridge the gap between the two and I would like to talk about this before because I realized that we're moving on and I really I have so many questions is um the panspermia theory that you mentioned earlier and I feel like that's one area where the bridging the gap hasn't quite happened yet because in the paper the preprint that you were telling us about you mentioned about how one of the things is that it's very theoretical because there really isn't that much observation that's possible in such high uh, at such a high altitude. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that research and about the theory in, in general. Uh, so I think I mentioned before that that you know my supervisor had had this you know kind of crazy idea that base dust particles that are surrounding the Earth and the solar system have enough momentum to knock particles in the upper atmosphere out. So for something to escape the Earth, it needs to have a speed that's faster than the escape velocity, which de- basically depends on, on the mass of the Earth and um, how far you are away from it. So his paper, his original paper in, in 2017, showed that ab- above 150 kilometers, that this is possible, that you can have a space dust particle fly into the atmosphere, knock a, a large particle out, we're talking sort of nanometer size, between DNA and a piece of bacteria. The problem is that 150 kilometers is is almost like too high. The US government defines space as being anything above 100 kilometers. Now that's a kind of, that's really a political thing, because it's about where do they define space warfare to be happening. The atmosphere in reality just continues on and, and sort of gradually, you know, tails off. But the different layers of the atmosphere have very different sort of physics properties. The big question is, can you get these larger atmospheric particles or, or these, these pieces of DNA or these, these micrometer and nanometer sized particles up to around 150 kilometers? Answering that question is tricky. Nobody has observed, or nobody's even tried to observe these kind of biological particles at these, at these altitudes at all. So it, it's, a, it's effectively a completely open open question. There was, in a couple of years ago, they found biological particles uh, from the, the Russian seas. I think it's called the Barents and the Kara seas, seas I've never heard of. These sort of bacterial or, or DNA remnants were found on the side of the International Space Station. Now, the International Space Station orbits at around 400 kilometers altitude. So that that's way above 150 kilometers. So that does suggest that, you know, it's possible, possibly, I'm saying possible, possibly, possible lots, because, <laughs> yeah, possible. purely, purely because, you know, they've only, found it, they've only found it once, and it's been pointed out that that often uh, rockets that go to the International Space Station launch from Russia. So, you know, maybe that's a possible source. I think either way, you would expect to get some sort of biological particles, you know, up, up at the altitudes. Now, it's unlikely to be a measurable concentration, though. But what's important for this panspermia idea is that you just have one. So, you know, if, 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 you, if you have, and, and almost that's a philosophical thing, right? You know, just one biological particle being knocked out of the Earth's atmosphere and, and going off into space. There's something quite romantic about that, that the Earth is sort of seeding the, the solar system with, with pieces of life, pieces, pieces of, of DNA and, and such. I mean, it, it remains to be seen 
uh, well, it remains to be seen. I mean, that's basically what a lot of my PhD <laughs> will be is <laughs> is figuring out, you know, where you know, I, I, figuring out all of the various different aspects and details of this. I will be, you know, the first person, you know, along with my supervisor to to work on it. It's a completely original idea. You know, nobody's done any work on it, so I don't think it would take much for the idea to be sort of shut down in terms of a, a, a research direction, purely because it's such a, it's such an early stage. The, the reason why people haven't looked at this stuff before is because it is it is thought that all of these kinds of events and uh, these effects are going to be negligible or unlikely. But it, it's only negligible unlike, or unlikely until you've shown it is. You know, until you actually go and do the work and you, you show that this thing isn't possible, does it become not possible? That said, I mean, I've we've only been talking about the Earth. You know, one of the other things we've started looking at is Mars. You know, is looking at this process the other way around. Mars was heavily stripped of its atmosphere because it's got a, a quite a weak magnetic field, and so it can't really defend itself from uh, solar radiation and, and solar particles. And so, it also having a, a slightly thinner atmosphere. It's the, the, all of these sorts of things would go into reasons why it maybe could be more viable. So, could it have been that when Mars had an atmosphere and may have had life? Could it be that life began on Mars and then came to Earth? And maybe maybe this sort of particle transport, this life particle transport mechanism via these space dust collisions could be the way that that happened. It's much easier to, to work in the present day with what we currently understand. So I think, I think the starting point will be to try and understand the, me- the possible mechanism in the, in the solar system today. And then we can go back in time and see you know, what, what are the possibilities? So a part of this sort of work is trying to get people interested. My supervisor and I will, you know, we're going to be doing, you know, as much as we can on our own. But actually, you know, as things progress, we're going to want to work with lots of different groups. So we've started working with a, with a group in Germany that works on measuring very strong vertical winds in the, in the upper atmosphere. And so that's that's really exciting because that's the start of beginning to constrain what we're doing more closely by by the observational data sets and is that a potential mechanism for take exactly yeah yeah exactly i mean it's it's very simple i mean it's nothing nothing complicated you know strong vertical wind blows thing upwards thing goes up high you know (laughs) Um, it's it's nothing you know it's nothing more than that there are lots of uh, observations of very strong you know 100 meter per second winds in the thermosphere and and also as i discovered these observations are very difficult to make and so they've also got their own constraints the the models are not good at representing these stronger vertical winds either so it's not like i could take a really good weather model of of the thermosphere and put in some particles and you know see how high they go because the the model doesn't represent these stronger vertical winds well enough so yeah it's there's lots of problems to solve (laughs) um and then just to finish off i did want to ask in terms of bridging things that are very disparate you do you did mention that you were a classically trained baritone and you want to combine this with a career in physics how (laughs) (laughs) well we'll see again again i'm not i do this sort of thing i'm i'm not alone in 
in, in having that sort of an interest and, and pursuing both at a, at a professional level. For me personally, obviously, COVID Brexit has sort of thrown everything sort of up in the air, you know, research, you know, singing everything. At the moment, my plan is to, to slowly begin to do more recitals and those recitals perhaps can start, I can start to weave in uh, some different pieces of repertoire and song that, that involve, you know, pieces of, pieces of physics. I mean, what inspires the great songwriters is often what has also inspired, you know, great physicists. Huge thanks to Daniel for volunteering to be on the show. As you can tell, it was a far-reaching conversation with some fascinating insights into the cutthroat world of condensed matter physics. If you happen to run into him in the freshly opened pubs, buy him a drink and I guarantee you'll be debating the metaphysics of quiche until three in the morning. You can find Daniel on Twitter at Daniel underscore Brenner. That's B-R-E-N-E-R. He also has his own website, which we'll link to in the show notes. And don't forget to check out the bonus material for this episode if you want to hear more of our conversation. This episode is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast.gmail.com and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. This episode was hosted by me, Helena Cornu, and my partner in crime, Tom Edwick. The podcast logo was designed by USI chief editor, Apple II, and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama, and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop, both by Kevin McLeod. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time... Keep it science! <laughs> no, it's a big, big, big time of change. You, you, you two are not thinking of starting your own duo podcast. <laughs> Maybe. Do you know what? We absolutely should. Yeah. You should do it. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, it'll just be tangents on sourdough. Tends <laughs> <laughs> to be what well, we talk about. <laughs> that's that's physics. That's physics. Yeah. You know, there's a whole. There's, I think there's a twelve volume book on on the physics of of bread. Where can I get my hands on this? <laughs>